This is Improvised Radio Theatre with Dice. With me, Michael Q. And me, Roger Bell West. This is our Salamagundi. There's a good word. Salamagundi, I like that word. Of uh, various things to do with role-playing games and various other geeky issues. And this week we're talking about... Um, How to steal things. Um, the limits of weirdness in, in, that one can cope with. Yes, I, I, I'm getting old. My brain's getting tired and full up of weird. Pre-written adventures. And look, looking back on a gaming classic. That sounds enough for now. And let's hope the wind doesn't blow us away before we get there. I've talked in the past about my enjoyment of uh, at least two of the big and very complex uh, published backgrounds in role-playing games, Glorantha and Tecumel. And I am uh, still very fond of them and still collecting them. I just bought the Bethorn, which is the new, um, the latest uh, uh, Tecumel role-playing game. And I... And I do collect that sort of thing. But I fear I may be reaching my limits. It may partly be that I'm getting old, and it may partly be that I'm acquiring things mostly in PDF form nowadays, which is I'm finding is more difficult to uh, uh, to read at great length than um, anything printed. But I bought, um, via a bundle of holding, um, copies of Numenera, and most of its supplements. Now, Numenera is, as we've mentioned, a far future uh, setting, the Ninth World, millions, or perhaps billions of years in Earth's future, after multiple high-tech civilizations have risen and fallen, and the players are characters living in the uh, detritus of all that ultra-high-tech, which they don't really understand, uh, a world full of wonderful and strange things. And I read it, and I look at it, and I think this is all very clever. And it's not going in. It's not penetrating what's left of my brain. And this is what I'm wondering about. Roger has the th this theory, which he will tell you about, that there is a limit to what you can expect the players to read as background briefing. Well, we talked about it before. Yeah, about a page of A4, maybe two. Yeah, about that. Okay, but... I said, fair enough, they'll pick it up as they go along, and if you're any sort of GM, you can show them the world. Show is better than tell. But there is a limit for GMs, and Numenera is pushing my limits. I'm sure it's very clever. I'm sure there's a lot of beautiful work and thought gone into it. I'm also sure that I'm not cracking it, and I'm wondering why. Well, to be honest, I, I have generally felt the same way about Tecumel, and to some extent I think you can define a campaign in some respects by how much work the GM has to put in to get a handle on it, mm. because there are some things we're familiar with, and there are things we're yeah. less likely to be familiar with. So, if if we've got your basic sub-Tolkienian fantasy, well, we've read Tolkien, we, we know about elves and yeah, dwarves. Yeah, I've always said there's, there, there are, that games where there is a shorthand, where you can, when you can give an elevator pitch, um, this is adventure in a Victorian age, but it's steampunk and sorcery. It's good enough for Castle Falkenstein. It's, it, it, it gives some of the flavour, at least, a point where you can start. Yeah. I think science fiction games did suffer from this quite a bit, um, until people started adopting, for example, aliens 
as a as a as a baseline, and then you can say aliens, but with yeah, whatever. I I should say there's a a good book by uh, Joe Walton, which I've re- read recently, called uh, Why What Makes This Book So Great, <laughs> and she's an essay in the uh, which is a series of reviews of old science fiction that she has re- reread and liked. There's an essay in there about people who don't get science fiction, and she talks about giving um, a copy of Joe Holderman's The Forever War to a non-SF reader, who got to the bit where he mentions the faster-than-light drive and boggles out at that and can't go any further because it refers something to something they, they don't know about, they want to know about, which is very odd to persons with a genre of sensibility, because we've got over that. Yeah, well, at one end you can have something like, um, say, Star Wars, mm. where nobody talks about how it works. You just but look at it, all the, the shiny lights. But, it, but it's clear that this is the thing that you have to have, because we know that stars are more than walking distance apart. Yeah. On the other hand, something like The Forever War, um, I haven't read it for a few years, but it seems to me that he's, he's reasonably pleased with um, the method he's invented. Yeah, and he he goes into it in a certain amount of detail, because it does set up the 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 technical, tactical, strategic background. Yeah, so so, the, so and and the stretch of the story. So it's not just shut up. I know this, but I want to tell the story anyway. It it is no. This is something you're actually going to need to understand. This and is it, why these people behave the way they do. And it seems to me that if if your reading is primarily in the mimetic. contemporary, the the mimetic say. is what what Joe Walton used. Yeah. Imitating um, real life, the, then um, that's probably not a style of reading that you're used, you're used to doing. I mean, yeah, I was brought up on science fiction. I'm used to doing this stuff. Yeah, it's, if, yeah if, um, if you meet it suddenly, it's going to be unexpected. I do worry about these people. They're going to be constantly surprised by stuff happening in real life. Because <laughs> we've been in science fiction since 1945. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was 1914. Anyway, um, oh, that's arguable. Yes. All right, go on. But, but, Let's, let's say uh, science fiction traditionally had this problem, um, science fiction gaming specifically. Yeah. Because, yeah, you, you can say it's a blaster and people will think Star Wars, but if you say it's a spaceship, there's an awful lot of range of things of what that spaceship might be like. There's, there's no automatic, this is what we do with it. Yeah, I have one player at least who, who dismisses all science fiction gaming as being basically about, about the equipment list and not about the people. Uh, because mm. he feels that if he's got a sword in his hand, uh, he, can, he he knows what he can do with it and what its likely effects are going to be uh, when he hacks at, at people. And the magic is just, you know, an, an, adi- an, is- an additional detail. Mm, I'd say a high-power fantasy campaign can be just as much about the equipment list. It's just you didn't get to pick through a catalogue and buy it. But, yeah. But uh, do, do you remember Talislanta? Yes, I do. That? do. They, they, they had a big advertising campaign saying, No elves! Yeah, this this was not your standard Tolkienian Norse European yeah. fantasy. It had its own strange and alien cultures, but I never actually heard that of that many people playing it. I'm sure they did. I'm, I, I tried now, but I tried. I think I got through one session. Um, the trouble was, and again, no else. There was no way in. Going back to what you asked about Techimil. My yeah, because because this does strike me as the, the next thing to say, because you have clearly assimilated Tecumel to the point where you're cap- happy running games in it. So how did you get in there? <sighs> All right, it is known that I have a, an obsession with religions and with ethical issues and with um, how people think about right and wrong and what their culture thinks about it. And Tecumel is very good 
on on that. It gives you the 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 twenty gods of Pavar's pantheon, two sides, uh, change and stability. It gives you individual obsessions of the gods and their fo followers, but it also gives you a culture you can work your way into. You can do it in two ways. One, you're an outsider coming in. The, no, you're, the classic that, that, that's the player the classic, side. I'm, I'm thinking more of the GM side. Well, um, I don't know. It just fits in with me. It can say, it, it does a good job of saying here, this is the voice of a person in the world. Here, here is, um, here is what somebody who lives in this culture thinks like and does like. And I, I, I can slot into that. I can see other structures of things work in the background. I don't need to know all the details of the of all the bed Malgen em, em, emperors. They're there somewhere. Um, Professor Barker worked them out for his own satisfaction or some somebody, some sub-creator has. I don't need to have that off the top of my head. Mm. I just need to know something about the, the, the depth of history it is actually important to, to have a sense of the the depth of the of the the history which is long no really long no even longer than that no no really your players are going to come across stuff that's even even older than that but you don't need to to know the details all you need to see is the surface and have a, a sense of the underneath and i can i can tie tie that in you 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 imagine it's the same way a player is because that's what you're going to have to do you're going to have to say to a player here you're a you're a barbarian. There are these strange people around you. Or here, you're um, you've been brought up by a rural clan out in the countryside, and this is what you know, and this is what your life is like. And now you're going to the big city. And now you're going to see the great world. And that that um, that but, frame of starting people off as barbarian foreigners is is already there in the books. It's yeah. already it's already there. Yeah, it's, and, so, and so and in the later books, so is so are various social strata of uh, Soliani clans as options. You know, you're not going to start anybody out, out as, a, as a sign of the imperial clan, but you, but you could be rich, poor, high class, low, low class, um, high status, or just a, a low, low slaver scum. Um, but you can imagine what the, those people's lives are like and get into it. And that's, that's not a problem. But with, what's it called, Numenera? I don't have a way of getting into that. I have, everything's strange. Everything is weird. The very dust underneath your feet is probably uh, worn-out nano machines from uh, uh, from a previous civilization. Treated properly, it can do weird and wonderful things. But they're weird and wonderful things that nobody has a handle on. It doesn't have to be true what the the, the players believe when they're casting magic. To take magic as a generic mm. term doesn't have to be true what they believe it has to be a good enough model that they that they have to go very very far to see the flaws in it it's like yeah. Newtonian physics you have to work very very hard to find the bits where it doesn't quite work yeah I, I am very keen on ha having a consistent framework that I can build in mm. and I, I was very happy when I discovered the concept of procedural content generation because this is basically what I do in a game Say that again and slowly and explain it. Procedural content generation is, in a computer gaming context, for example, it's saying you you don't actually have an individual map of every single house in this city. Yeah. But you do have a random generation system which can put together a plausible looking house and 
will yeah. put it consistently in that place the next time you come back to it. So you don't have to store every individual word, you just store the parts yeah. and, and, and the arrangements. And, and that's what you're doing with, uh, with it when, when you're creating a character, if you can remember to take notes and be consistent. Yeah, but also when, when I'm running a game. If you ask me what the, what the ninja who is chasing you had for supper, and you have the equipment to find out, well, I can probably work that out in a vaguely plausible way because I know just enough about him. The, the, the light can... bowl of rice because he knew he was going to be chasing you later. Which is perhaps more prep work than I should, should be doing, but I, I like to have that little bit of information to say I can dis determine everything if I need to. I'm just not going to do it yet. Yeah, the, it's the feeling of context that a good role-playing game, no matter how complex, gives you. A sense that you know where things fit together. You know, if you find yourself on the streets of one of the cities of Darahapa, you know what the governor is like and what God he, he worships and what your status is vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the, the governor and, and the, lo the, the local guard. Hmm. And you, 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 can, you can slot it in, maybe with cliches, maybe not entirely accurately for some canon authoritative version of the universe, but you can get into it, you can feel it, and that, that is important. Whereas New and Era, where the, the 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 piece of rubbish you pick up out, out of the street might be might be almost anything a thing that the people there don't understand but which can do wondrous things for you maybe once maybe twice i'm getting a sort of arabian nights feeling out of that to be honest ooh actually that might not be a bad yes very peripatetic very um you you are a cork on the seas of fate yeah, and uh, and there are powerful beings out there which you don't really understand. Oh, that's actually that's a good, that might work if I go back in and think of it with that with that focus. One thing that's worth worth considering, um, fluff, by which I mean fiction set in the game world, not anything yeah. more or less than that. I think that this made a difference. For example, between Shadowrun, which always had a lot of game fiction, yeah, and Cyberpunk, which didn't have very much. Because Cyberpunk tended to be, well, it's trying to be gen gen more generic than the Shadowrun was. Yeah, they did have um, so, some narrative wrapped around the starting adventure. I don't remember any any more than that, though I, I may be simply completely wrong. But Shadowrun not not only had um, vignettes, yeah, and it's got many more of them in later editions. They had an actual series of novels. I th I well, I agree. I m some of my most. Uh, enjoyed pieces of game product have been things which aren't strictly speaking um, useful in the game at all. Things like uh, the Book of Ebon Bindings which is a, a a book of demonology for Tecumel with an introduction by a priest of Kasaurul, the doomed prince of the Blue Room uh, the god of knowledge for the uh, change pantheon who explains everything from his own point of point of view and explains what he knows about the gods and what he knows about sorcery, and then this set of texts about um, how to summon up various very unpleasant demons. Okay, that that's good from the flavor point of view. The thing I'm thinking of specifically uh, about game fiction is here are examples of the sort of things people do in this world. These yeah. are the sort of stories that this world is set up to tell. Yeah. And, and well, Tekumel is set up to tell uh, stories of worlds where, where demons can turn entire continents upside down, but it's only very far in the background. You really wouldn't want. It probably won't happen tomorrow. It probably won't happen tomorrow. The player characters probably won't find instructions for it. 
<laughs> First, find a place to stand. Yes. But, um, yeah, the other thing that occurs to me vaguely in this context is, is the potential far-reaching implications of spot rulings, but this is possibly because last weekend I was running a fairly, fairly long-running game, Yeah. and something came up that hadn't before, which is, I have a shuttered lantern and I turn myself invisible. What happens? <laughs> what happens is the GM looks at you with less than total love. Well, what he wanted to do was sneak across somewhere invisibly while carrying a shuttered lantern, which he was then, because it had a fire elemental in it, and it was going to be thrown aboard a ship. Okay, the, the, the shuttered lantern was giving out light? Well, it was burning inside the shutters. Okay. Um... So my, my ruling on the spot, because it seemed like an interesting thing to do, is that the light will be transmitted. And some, somebody looking at this will see a, a glowing point of light or a glowing fire moving through the air. I'm not sure that's fair, because, you see, if the if the coat of... How does the... Yeah, this this leads to... you When you think more deeply about it, your, your solution is perfectly good, because it irritates the player. <laughs> that wasn't actually at the top of my mind. Uh, well, no, no, but but it gives it that it, it means he's going to have to be more more ingenious than he think than it, than his first solution. You, you have to be a bit careful about this because you, you're already faking things because people who are invisible, generally speaking, can still see what they're doing. Yes, so there really ought to be sort of shadows of eyeballs floating around, and we just we just gloss over that. Well, yeah, except I think what it's doing is. Permitting in uh, the, the magic must be permitting incoming light and doing something to the outgoing light, which makes absolutely no sense when you think <laughs> about it, because it's creating. You can't be creating an illusion because it's creating an illusion from multiple directions. So it must be doing something to warp the space around the player, which means that I think your initial ruling was wrong. But hey, it annoyed the player. I think there are various ways one could implement invisibility anyway. But uh, all of them highly unlikely. Indeed. My point is simply that is going to come back to bite me at some point. There is going to be an occasion sometime in this campaign when um, it would be really handy for the GM to be able to, to say, no, no, you can sneak while having a light source and the player will remember, no, actually you can't. <laughs> We probably should have a thread um, of uh, of irritating questions that player characters, the players ask. Um, we should probably ask our our listeners to send in exa- examples of uh, uh, of the stuff they've been stumped by. These are most... irritating questions. These questions are opportunities. Yes. Well, the thing was, the last one I got was, my character is a reincarnation of an elf. All elves are mages. I said. Yes. Mm-hmm. My current character does not appear to be a mage, I said. Yes. You always ruled in the past in your games that magery is a function of the soul. Please explain. <laughs> that took me an entire weekend oh, and, and, and brainstorming on the on the on the GURPS forums. I came back to the play and said, I've got a solution for you, it says Oh right, I was only asking. <laughs> Another thing I'd just like to mention in this context, um, when des- when designing a campaign, yeah. which is a thing I love doing, I, probably, I design far more campaigns than I actually run, every big decision shuts down options. Hmm. Uh, in play as well, but e- even just at the design level, it, it, it is a thing that I try to keep in mind and make sure that I have a list of the things I do want, 
Yeah, all so, that the players do want. Yeah, so that I don't accidentally make them impossible. Yeah, this is the great attraction of, of highly improvised uh, campaigns. It's just that a crafted thing, a thing that's had a lot of work gone into it, um, is uh, feels that much more uh, more. Maybe it's only the illusion is only in my head and not in my players. It feels that that much more real and realised and realisable towards the people I'm 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 depicting it towards. And on the other hand, and on the other hand, I have done game, uh, campaigns where I've created a lot of stuff into the background and then because the players have said something I have thrown it all away and said it never happened they haven't seen it so it never happened that's always an option yeah I, I do think that as with a fantasy novel it is very important to have much more stuff than the players actually see true if you put all your research and your world generation into a fantasy novel it gets very boring Sometimes yeah. you put it in an appendix and it's not quite as bad. Professor Barker's um, Techumel books, well, they could have been better. Eh. Well, so my, my answer is if I can figure out how people live on a fairly basic level, how societies work on a basic level, and, and that one of the tools with Numenera is that I don't have, have I guess I haven't yet found, and it is very hard work reading things in PDF. Yeah. I will say that I'm impressed enough that I, I, I wish I had the money to buy a hard copy. I haven't yet found a way in, a way to say, this is where I am, this is where the players start, this is where we start our exp exploration outwards. But I am very impressed by it, nonetheless. Do, does it not give you a certain amount of this is the sort of thing that PCs do? I haven't found it yet. I, I, I mean, they seem to, to. They it's using a very um, D and D ish. Well, I can't say that either. It's got a three character class structure and um, a level ish like mechanic, but it's much lighter than than D and D. Much more narrative focused, but it is. Centered on the wandering adventure, adventurer, stroke hero um, model, mm. and I don't have what I'm used to in looking at a world—a feeling of what the ordinary folks do. That's sounding very much like your classic D and D approach, where there were towns, mm. but they existed, so you could sell. Oh, the towns existed in wondrous detail. Yeah, so what what, what I mean, what I mean is, no, nobody worries about whether whether the innkeeper can make enough money at that price for beer and beer and lodging. Well, well the, the towns are there, and the cities are there, and the realms are there in great, in sufficient detail that I should be, but I I still can't get a hold of it, and 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 this is not uh, not not a. It is a complaint, but it's not a dismissal, because I'm, I want to like it more than I, uh, than I am at the moment. Thinking but, about, but on the other is, hand, is, is it perhaps worth um, reading other people's accounts of stuff they've done in the game? Perhaps yes. On the other hand, Talisland, having given it one try, having looked at all this wonderful detail, all these odd little cultures, I said, all "Right, thank you," and put it back and sold off the uh, the books I had, and uh, I'm not going back. Uh, there's a thing that is that is a dismissal and let's move <laughs> on to something else
last time I made a commitment that I would explain how I steal stuff. Uh-huh. And the answer to that is very simple. Always steal from bad stories. There is something of the aesthete in me which is revolting at this answer, but go on, explain. Simply because it's easier. In a good story, yeah. everything is integrated. Go on. This, this is here because it's part of that other thing, and it links to that other thing over there, and it all comes to, to make a coherent whole. Yeah. In a bad story, typically the, the ten different scriptwriters who worked on it have, be, have already stolen stuff from other places, <laughs> and they've, they've, they've rammed it together and put it together with hot milk glue. Uh-huh. But it's not mixed up, it's not integrated, so it's much easier to carve out one bit of it and drop it into your own adventure or campaign or whatever else. Well, yes, I will admit that my experience says that when I do steal things from what I thought were really awesome uh, sources, yeah, it does tend to go a bit awkward for perhaps slightly different reasons. All right, give us an example of stuff you've stolen from um, terrible sources that you have made nonetheless awesome. Um, go on, you have to have prepared <laughs> this much. <laughs> All right, I'll tell my story about uh, stories about how things um, went badly for me whilst Roger has a think. Um, my first example comes from um, one of my very earliest games back in my in the dim distant past when I was uh, running D and D for what, for the first time, I think. And I put into my first dungeon entire the room from uh, the magician's nephew, where um, the two uh, central characters find Jardis at the end of the line of thrones of uh, mummified, dead, we're not quite sure, uh, rulers of Charm, her home world. And she's there, and there's the bell, strike the bell, petrous stranger, strike the bell, and bear the danger, or wonder till it drives you mad what would have happened if you had. I was an idiot, all right? But I put it in, in there, and this wandering band of, of dungeon wanderers came across it, and they all knew the reference, and they looked at it, and they did a detect magic, and it was live on her, and they said, um, she's going to be an incredibly powerful sorceress. I said, yes, she must be. Hmm. She'd be worth a lot of hit points. She'd be worth a lot of experience points if we could kill her. <laughs> and you've told us that uh, cold iron is incompatible with the use of magic. Uh, yes, I said. <laughs> and so they stuck a helmet on her back to front, struck the bell and, and blasted her to death. And I gave her a lot of experience points. So my rule for when adapting things is always understand your players will deconstruct anything. <laughs> yeah, I, I think possibly I'm, I'm, I'm stealing smaller things. I'm, I'm, years ago, I, I read a very, very bad science fiction book about, it might have been called Star Precinct or something similar. I can't even remember the title now. And it, it was very badly written. It, it was a bunch of police in space. Yeah. But there were some little bits of it about uh, how, how do you work out police procedure when when you put, when you are potentially taking several months to respond to an emergency call. Uh huh. That I could steal, and that that was what I stole, not the whole setup and, and the. Okay. People. Well, I tell you what, my rule for uh, successful stealing is: do it unconsciously. Hmm. Because I was struck. Um, I'm running a, the the campaign which reincarnation came up. I started rereading um, the uh, Vlad Taltos books by Stephen Brust, which I recommend, mostly because uh, Joe Walton, who I mentioned earlier, 
did a re review of her rereading of it in um, What Makes This Book So Great. And it struck me that I had stolen this, uh, the, the fact that two of the player characters are reincarnations of ancient mythical figures from the fact that Vlad Taltos is a reincarnation of the uh, Dragaeran founder of the Great Empire, who isn't even a member of his species. Mm -hmm. And so I think that if you steal things without knowing it, it's liable to work in better. Mind you, that said, having realised that I'd done it, I put in, in a necromancer who lives, uh, an ancient elven necromancer who lives um, on a mountain which looks like a big black cat, just as a tribute. <laughs> I also gave her cobbled followers because that's the way to do it. One advantage of pinching from bad stuff, if your players know where it comes from, they may not admit it. Yes. I, um, I found myself in a game run by a, a friend of mine who had stolen the background from a series of very bad um, pornographic science fiction stories which I had run across on the net. <laughs> and I was made fairly uncomfortable by that since I was never quite sure how far he was going to go in bringing it in, nor indeed what it said about me and him, that we both liked that stuff. On the other hand, if one of the other players had also read them, you, you and he would never have found that out, because neither of you would have mentioned it. <laughs> I, I, I mentioned it to, to my friend and said, oh, yeah, I know where this came from. Um, and that's as far as we've got, being English. <laughs> I will agree that um, what you want to, one place to steal things from, um, which I should do more often, when I'm thinking about things, is TV tropes. Yep. Go to um, this... Ma uh, those of you who have not yet found it and wasted immense amounts of time uh, going through it will find this to be a site where people will, te uh, will note down all the cliched... Re not cliched necessarily, but reused ideas that throw up in various sorts of... Um, of uh, mostly fantastical settings and uh it's it's ideal for finding things that you can put in as twists and turns in all sorts of uh, all sorts of stuff and as i say an ideal uh, space to find yourself running through through links and say oh, let's have a look at that well that happens there yes that is parallel to that i could use that hours of your life will be wasted you hear <laughs> it here first or probably not thinking of uh, that that sort of source i've been reading recently yeah. A book called Save the Cat. Go on. Which is generally regarded, as far as I can see, as the book that ruined Hollywood. I think Hollywood was probably already ruined, but anyway. Th there's probably a review of it on my blog by now, by the time this goes out. Um, but there is some interesting stuff in there. Go on. Because a, a thesis here, I, I think role-playing games can get away with more cliché than other media and, st and still be enjoyable. Because they're fun yeah. because we're participating in them, and some of the fun is I get to do my own unique take on this particular trope or cliche. Fair enough, but bear in mind what I said about deconstruction. Oh, it's you're, certainly you're, possible you're, to overdo it. What we're doing in some ways in role-playing games is creating spontaneous fanfic. And I th one of the things about fanfic is that people want to do it the way the author should have done it. Um, and and go around and say, well, but obviously, Harry Potter, at that moment in time, what he really should have done 
and uh, that's going to happen. Well, go on, tell me about Save the Cat, and why is it called Save the Cat anyway? It is a book for Hollywood scriptwriters, or okay. aspiring scriptwriters. Go on. About how to sell your film script with a reasonable chance of getting it made. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, the, the guy who wrote it only actually got two scripts made, but he made an awful lot of money on speculative sales back when that was still a thing. So he, he could That's at least two sell... scripts more than me, mate. He could at least sell scripts. Um, his main point is story structure. Yeah. Um, and he, he's very rigid about, you know, seven pages in, there should, there should be a point where this happens. Um, but what, what, even if you throw that out, and the reason I'd recommend borrowing it rather than buying it if, if you're using for role playing is because that's the, that's the meat of it. He does have things like saving the cat specifically. You need to have an early scene yeah. that establishes the hero as somebody sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, the the it is named for the relatively late scene in Alien where Ripley make, go, makes the point of going back for the cat rather than just escaping from the spaceship. Yeah, um, but. He he reckons this this is best done as something fairly early. You're showing the hero as you know big important heroic guy, yeah. but you need to get the audience on his side. And I'm inclined to agree with him. There's a lot of films simply don't bother to do this, and they they do tend to leave me cold. Um, but so, for example, I think one can twist that just a little bit and say your your PCs should be the sort of person who who do stuff, who look for clues, go after things, investigate things, mm-hmm. not just sit and wait for things to happen. Um, he talks about make, making minor characters um, recognisable. He calls it limp and an eye patch. Yeah. But some sort of convenient mannerism that reminds the audience of who this particular NPC is mm-hmm. is good for a GM as well. I'm, I'm, I'm trying styles of speech at the moment because it's something I tend to let slip. And it, if, yeah. I can fo- if I can just fall into a particular way of portraying the NPC, then that helps me to remember who he is and how to play him. Yeah, I I have difficulty because voices come easy, easily to me. I do sometimes have difficulty keeping um, NPCs straight and to create. Uh, if I were playing the character in a on on a stage or in a, or in a TV thing, doing them there week after week, then then they would build up detail. But when it's drop them in, give them the briefing, go away. Then it is. I have yet to find a style to, uh, of note taking that helps me make that consistent. And then maybe six months later, in real time, they meet him again. Yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, um, playing uh, Angleton in as an NPC in the laundry, uh, James Jesus Angleton, the uh, deeply scary sorcerer, is never a problem. I, he's, <laughs> he's always very, very clear in my own mind. I think clear in theirs. The the other thing that um, I think is interesting, it's not generally a thing that's in my style of game, we'll come back to this later, mm. um, Snyder recommends every scene has to have an emotional charge and a fundamental conflict, otherwise it shouldn't be in the script. Now, I don't think this applies to role-playing games in general, but it sounds an awful lot like Hillfolk to me. Yeah, well, Hillfolk's de- designed that way. Robin's got this theory that there is a difference between... Procedural scenes: Do they get get across the chasm? Do they find the clue? Uh, do they defeat the monster? And dramatic scenes in which somebody has to has to win and somebody has to lose, or or an issue has to be resolved somehow. It's about emotion and and giving recognition to people. Ay 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 ay. I have. I have doubts about that being as interesting yeah, as he thinks. But it clearly works for some people, and I would certainly yeah. say that if you follow that Hamlet's hit points model of um, pacing and beats, yeah, 
uh, there's a lot of the same stuff in here and it may, may well provide a useful second opinion on it. So if, if you're doing that, it probably is worth buying. But uh, for, for more, games more in the sort that I think you and I tend to run, mm. borrow. I, I don't know. I get the feeling... In my own games, the emotional issues... I tend to believe the emotional issues should come at a climax. That your excitement and... Do do they make it? Do they solve it? Do they, um, do they achieve it? Are the lead up to the moment when when you get to the meaning of the whole thing, the 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 ethical issue, the 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 finding the right thing to do, should be at the climax. It should be in ev every scene. There should be scenes about that. Park through. To, uh, park, how do I? How do I get this witness to calm down? How do I reassure, reassure her fears? Is both a procedural and an emotional thing. Yeah, because it it tell in in the TV show model it tells the audience this is the sort of person who will yeah. will ta will tackle it this way. And uh, and honestly, I'd rather watch House do it by being a bastard. Than I were, then I want to see some somebody sympathise with some uh, with somebody, but that may may just be me. <laughs> I think I House, I house is a very interesting text. Um, the TV series, yep. House MD, is a very interesting text for both arguing for that and arguing against against <laughs> that. Um, well, procedurally, it's very much on a template, isn't it? Yeah, yeah we, and, we try and a bunch of things, things get worse, then we try the right thing, and things get better. Yeah. Um, but at some point, if the uh, scriptwriters are doing their job right, somebody has a horrible choice to make. Somebody has a, a thing to face, and it ma matters to them, if not to House, how it turns out. The House's um, not caring is very much uh, a front and a means of dealing with things, except that sometimes he really doesn't care. <laughs> All right, look, you are saying steal from cliches. Yep. If you have access to sci-fi movies of the week, hmm. well, I enjoy them anyway, but if, if you can steal something from that, nobody will ever admit that they they watched it too. <laughs> and I don't it, think and you geek as much with, 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 with dedicated geeks, game as much with dedicated geeks as I do. And even if, even if they do, you, you, you can get that out whole rather than um, having to have little dangling veins and arteries of where it was tied into the rest of the story. Okay. All right, well, passing on to the next thing. A comment on the previous episode. Uh, Owen asked, "Why, why um, am I running pre-written adventures in the Talk campaign?" Mm -hmm. And this the answer that seems to be, "Why not? Why not, Owen?" Well, I don't normally run a lot of pre-written adventures. Um, okay. In this particular case, um, it was partly because I wanted a campaign that I could run with very little preparation. Yeah. Uh, I had been running a, the 1960s Psychics campaign, which which was great fun, but really turned into a research fest for me. Yeah. I am prone to do this. Um, also because I'd been interested in them when they came orig originally came out, but hadn't actually played them. Yeah. 
and was was looking into them in a bit more detail and wanted to appreciate them as they were designed to be appreciated mm. rather than just reading them. Um, also, because it's a great big cinematic story and it has a conclusion. Yeah. They did get to the end before the company went bust. Uh, An arc is a, is a wonderful thing to, 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 to sail along. Yeah, yeah and by, by many accounts it gets pretty shaky towards the end. I, I do intend to insert some of my own material into it. Uh, at the moment I'm running through the original trilogy of adventures, mm-hmm. and the, the party's um, in, in the second one at the moment. Um, but, yeah, I have noticed some, some of the published material is, is distressingly close to a series of fights and puzzles with a little bit of narrative linking between them, because yeah. Yeah, it was the 1990s, you could still do that. It was pre-vampire, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Angst is, is is not even an option. But you know, the, the, there is nothing that I have found, for example, on... Hang on a minute, there are all these storm knights and they all reckon they're working on the side of good. Do they talk to each other? I mean, surely they should have some sort of network or wait, you know, at least a phone tree or something. Yeah. But anyway, um, in general, I don't run a lot of pre-written adventures. When I do, it's usually because they can provide a set of components that fit together reasonably well and that I can stick as a lump into an existing mm-hmm. game. I don't usually run them as one-shots. And as we've just yeah. been saying, it's, it's if you can take something wholesale and plonk it in rather than having trailing bits, it's likely mm-hmm. to work. And it, Why do I do this? It gives a change in flavour from the stuff yeah. that I've made up myself. Uh, I, I, I fear I get into ruts. I should really ask my players if they can describe the standard Roger adventure template at some point. Yeah, I've I've asked my players uh, players for for what I I repeat, and they tell me the bastards. Yeah. Um, but but also, if the players want to chase off to, off after something that was in that adventure, or yeah. some, some concept or way of doing things, then that can prompt me to repoint the overall campaign slightly. Well, I'm running. I first of all, I run other people's adventures because they're often jolly good, and because um, I do not have an infinite amount of time, patience, or intelligence. Um, and I, I, I need the input. Yeah. My favoured way to do it is to create the the frame adventures around which, uh, in, in, into which I, I've stuck the stuck the player characters, and then drop things other people have written into it. I've done this with Glorantha. There's a lot of stuff um, based around. Uh, Parvis and the Solarfell River Valley and uh, that area, and I've run numerous campaigns. I have, um, I'm doing it at the moment with Laundry. Now there are, and the Laundry is being a lazy man's um, delight because there are a lot of high quality adventures having been written for them. I have perhaps been too more generous than uh, than the people who write the game expect me to be with my players. They are surviving. The characters are surviving. Some of them are starting to die off. Um, even quite Some of the quite powerful ones are starting to die off as I, I rake up the challenges that they are facing. And I... But the... There are individual adventures. They're on one of them now, which is... Which are based on their, their own backstories and are going to... Uh, and, they, and, and their own... Um, their own obsessions. Their... One of the players said, well, I don't actually know how my character came into Laundry because they've erased my memory. And <laughs> so I am, uh, I'm telling him his secret origin this week. Mm-hmm. So a framework of taking other people's stuff and putting it into, a, into, into 
a setting that my that's individualized for the uh, for the player characters which is their home base their well it's the laundry they're not terribly secure but their 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 own place to go go out from one problem i've had with this is that the the campaigns i've tended to run are not usually standard pre-written or published campaigns that their stuff i've either made up myself or tweaked yeah. heavily so if i say i'm running oh say say the reign of steel game yeah robot rebellion and so on there aren't a lot of adventures that are set in that sort of setting where civilization has basically fallen mm. um but you are still agents of it and that they're a big nasty well yeah you you can start converting things into it but you have to do a lot of conversions I, yeah. And if you do enough conversions, you might well have written it anyway, or just steal the idea. However, I was able to uh, bring into that. I, I've used a Dark Heresy adventure in that, mm -hmm. the Warhammer Forty Thousand Horrible Future, yeah. um, because what, one of one of the Zone Minds does like experimenting with gooey biotech, and that was what this particular adventure was about. Um, I, I used a cyberpunk adventure. Um, that that was um, quite fun because the, the PCs in in my campaign yeah. were professional soldiers. And the, the cyberpunk adventure had assumed that the PCs are the sort of idiots who, when they are hiding in a bar with toxic chemicals in the air outside, will allow themselves to be provoked into a firefight. <laughs> Were they? No. Ah. But they, they found the bloke who was doing the provocation and hit him very hard. Yeah, but this is what I mean by deconstruction. There are, are, there are a lot of uh, pre-published adventures out there um, which make assumptions that the author isn't aware of. Yeah, I think the trick to doing this, to, to bringing single adventures in, is the ability to skim through something and spot quickly, is this going to need only minor surgery or is it going to be too much trouble? Hmm. I have, uh, yeah, I, I, my one, my most embarrassing moment um, was in running somebody else's adventure, I think I mentioned this before, was agreeing to do a bit of GMing at a, at a convention with a, an adventure that I hadn't written. Uh, Cthulhu adventure and finding out part way through that it made absolutely no damn sense whatsoever <laughs> and having to sit there and explain this and admit this to the players. I'm terribly, Is this terribly better or sorry. worse than when it's your own adventure which has happened to me? If it's my own adventure I can always go, ah, um, hang on a second there's a bit of background the players don't know about and I can sit here looking smug and even if I have <laughs> only just made it up a moment ago um, because if it's mine, yeah, I'm responsible for it, and I can make it make sense. Yeah, it's when they say after the adventure was was all over. Yes, but why didn't you? When it happens in the middle oh, of the adventure, at that point you can, you can look wise and say fridge logic. Don't don't knock it; it works. <laughs> Which um, I, I, I think is a cheat, but it is a cheat. Uh, but um, and I'm not actually that good an improviser that sometimes I don't say, oh yes, I I hadn't thought of that. Still, yes. I, I don't understand. Uh, you can't write everything, and um, there are a lot of very creative people out there. Um, so All right. What, what is the adventure that that I could bring into my nineteen sixties? Um, you 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 are some of the world's only psychic people working for MI five. Oh, um, hang on. Bearing in mind that the opposition is basically psychic rather than monstrous. Hmm. I don't know. Um, I don't have. All the psionic adventures that I can think of tend to focus on breakouts. 
on people becoming psychic rather than what happens after you've been psychic for a long time. Except maybe... Oh, this is, this is going back to stealing ideas. How about you get... How about you, you get to meet something like the um, psychic group mind from More Than Human, one of my favourite books, incidentally, but portrayed as a monster, portrayed as um, a terrible um, disintegration of individuality into one. Mm. I'm sorry, there's no published adventure like that, but that's what I would, I would yeah. do. Oh, yeah, ideas are great. Um, but I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to draw the line here between stealing an idea, which I could do from an adventure or a book or a film or anything else, yeah. and actually running a recognisable version of this adventure. Well, if you're going to and do some it... some campaigns are just very much harder to do that than others. You're right, but you're willing to... It's set in the, in the 1960s. Uh, the thing is, there isn't a lot of uh, of adventure published that's set, set in the 60s. Yeah. You might want to gack... Um, what's it called? Progenitor by uh, Greg Stolze, which is um, a superhero timeline, in which, which starts mm. in the 90, in 1967 or thereabouts, when one person on Earth becomes a super powerful being and starts infecting people around her with slightly less powerful amounts of superpower, mm. which then spreads out and out and out through the generations. And yeah. The story is all about that sort of thing. It's full of of campaign ideas and things you might want to gack. <laughs> I don't know. The, I I would normally never try to bring in a whole adventure. From, I can't think I've ever done it from a different setting and and dump it in. Well, it has worked. I mean, as as I say, the the, the Warhammer Forty K and the Cyberpunk were both. You, know, you can see their points of contact with Rain and yeah. Steel. But there are lots of things that aren't there as well. Uh, I, I borrowed a Call of Cthulhu adventure for my World War Two campaign. Yeah, those are, those are the, the the World War Two campaign is specifically not about huge supernatural entities, but this particular one was about a fairly low powered one. Well, mm. comparatively low powered compared with Cthulhu or Azathoth. So. Yeah, C compared with several blocks of high explosive carried carried from the torpedoes of a wrecked submarine, it was not quite powerful enough. <laughs> <laughs> Blow them up. It's always the solution. I think we pass on. Yeah. Uh, a while back, we were talking about advice to GMs and books of advice to GMs. And uh, we mentioned there, as we rightly should, Robin's Laws of Good Games Mastering, a publication of Steve Jackson Games, still available yep. um, via their... Uh, I don't think it's in physical print, but it's certainly on uh, E23. Yep. Or, or whatever it's called nowadays. And uh, we decided to go back and reread it and see how much of it uh, still applies, still struck us as good advice. It took us good advice back in the day. Yeah, um, I believe Robin has said that whether or not he would regard it as obsolete, there are certainly things he would write very differently if he were doing it now. And this is published in 2002, I believe, so things uh -huh. have changed, changed a certain amount. And Robin's practices yeah. and the games he's running have changed a certain amount. That is like saying uh, Mount Everest is quite tall. <laughs> so what struck you uh, going through? Well, 
I never really found that that categorization of player types particularly convincing. You know, the, the the power game of the tactician and so on, because all the players I've I've gamed with more, more than you know, once yeah. have had a blend of multiple types. Well, he does say that to be fair, but I, I find they're not not so much archetypes as collections of traits that often go together, but not always. And, and I, yeah. you, know, you you can look at the list and think, well, I've got you know, two or three of those traits in this particular person, but not the not the whole seven. Yeah, I mean, and, and some of the obsessions of my players aren't there at all. Um, he talks about the method actor. But I've got at least one player, though, who he, he likes getting into character. His 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 ego is is is, is pumped by... Uh, I, by, by being on stage and being the centre of attention and um, being a scene hog and uh, being big and dramatic and over the top rather than being in-depth and in the feeling and in the moment. I'm a bit of a method actor myself when, I, when, I, when I'm a player. Um, and I've never come across a casual gamer. I don't think I've ever come across a casual gamer in my life. I, I've met one or two, but they tend to drift away from the game. Yeah, well, they don't. They don't stick around. I mean, if you're going to go out uh, on a regular basis and make regular appointments, I, I mean, I, I asked, I asked one of my players yesterday. Um, I'd say, say, I'd say, your wife is is uh, one of the one of the nearest thing we've got to a casual gamer, but even she's not casual when she's in the room. And he said, "Well, I did meet meet her at a, a role playing event, so it must mean something to her." <laughs> Which just shows how much I know. But th thinking of your method actor, I, I at least, pretty much any time I'm playing, I, I try to go by what my character would do rather than necessarily what's tactically advantageous. Mm, yeah. But on the other hand, the thing that's supposed to go with that is um, trying to get rid of, uh, get rid of, or ignore, or have lightweight rules. And but, I, I have no objection to rules at all. Uh, I, 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 find, I, I know players yeah. whose goal, whose goal certainly is to make their characters more powerful. But they aren't necessarily loophole seekers or seeing their PCs as, as an abstraction of powers. That they're, they're, It's just that's one of their goals. Yeah. So it, it's in terms of things that will please players, Yeah. sure. But it's just a matter of fi find the things that please your players, I think, rather than necessarily classify them. It may, may be just the players I know. The thing about method actors and storytellers moving... And, 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 and storyteller is... Is a thing I, I see in GMs, but it's not it's not a thing I see much in players. Moving towards light systems is something else that I, I'm not at all sure about. I find a usable but crinkly, crunchy system tends to support method actors, people who want to play the part, as well as people who want to simulate and yep. and, and make the details important. I, I find that I find that the rules light thing is great for the storyteller. It's great for me as a, a GM. I don't have to prepare as much. I can whip things up on the spur of the moment. But that sometimes is destructive towards my my players who say, "Look, everything in this game is down to every power is the same. Every um, every every resolution is, is the same. There is no flavour." To it, and that's a, the complaint they had against here at Quest. That it, yeah, I, I can I can see the problem there. And they they say I don't know. I either pile everything into my one central trait, or um, or I I I, I find unusual uses for my lesser traits. I don't 
I don't get a flavour from this. I think, as, as a GM, I'm quite happy to go along in a storytelling mode for a while. But I like to be able to fall back on the simulation for that moment when somebody says, OK, I'll snipe him. Well, is that actually a physically plausible thing for you to do with that particular rifle you've got? Do I care? Uh, yeah, this is going to be a problem. Yeah, because I do care. Yeah, <laughs> in your upcoming game, because I'm planning on playing a sniper, and I'm one of the people who really doesn't care that much about the technical details. <laughs> so I'm going to have to bluff even more than I normally do. But... Um, I think it's quite telling that what, what Robin describes as the storyteller is very much the um, direction his, his more recent writing has gone in. Specifically, yeah. it, it's replicating the story that you will find in, a, or the sort of story that you will find in another medium, a book or a film or whatever. Yeah, well, that's what he says he's doing. I'm not convinced, well, we've said this before, we'll probably say it again. I'm not convinced that we're doing the same sort of storytelling. I'm not sure, I'm not sure that story is actually the product we're trying to, to mm. produce in role-playing games. It's the experience is what we're trying to produce, not what we say happened afterwards, but what we feel at the time, I think is what, what's, what, what's important. I mean, Robin says, quite rightly, that the thing is, the aim is to have fun. There's good stuff in the in uh, Robin's Laws about, oh, yeah. uh, about reading the room, for instance, about yep. being constantly aware of all the players all the time, there are only five or six of them. You can't, you, and they're quite close to you. You should be able to track all of them, and you should be able to shift your attention. You should be able to. You should have routines which say, "I've been paying attention to this person too much. Go and find out what this person wants to do on a regular basis." Shifting the scene, shifting the focus, weaving the tale to get together, or just scanning people's faces and seeing who's looking bored. Yeah, I can't tell. You know, but, um, <laughs> I, I think the section on, on theme and tone, when, you, when you're, he, he describes it as picking a rule system, but um, mm. it, it's basically when, when deciding what the campaign's going to be. Yeah. Uh, it, it's very good indeed. Um, you, you've been an example of that, the Cyberpunk game, which I initially pitched in a way that was a bit too damn beat for the players' tastes. Yeah. So, so I've now tried to fix that a bit. Um, what he doesn't mention, which I think is a pity, but it works very well with this, is offering the players a selection of possible campaigns from which you can then get a sense of what they actually want yeah, to but do. He, but he also, but he also says, which is perfectly true, if you ask five players, you'll get five different answers. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I do do the prospectus thing, as you all know, and uh, and it is, uh, unless I, I make some selection at the start and say, this is the central theme I want to explore, in what ways would you be interested in? in it mm. that works better yeah makes um, sense you have to there are so, too many too, too many games too little time you've got to select now and yeah you're the one who's going to be doing the work as the GM <laughs> well most of the work the large part of the work let me not denigrate my players too much <laughs> listening um, one, one of the things that comes in here that just isn't really relevant to me though I've, I've certainly heard of it applying to other people um, is, is that whole um what rule set can you get people to go along with playing? Yeah. I, I, I think at least for a one-shot, I don't think there's any system that, that my, my regulars would say, no, we're not going to try that. There are systems which my players will say, we have tried that, and it was rubbish. Yeah. Um, even even systems that I really want to go back to for, for another time. And I have to say, yeah, um, it's odd, though, that the, the, the players, perhaps it's not odd, the players don't see the problems with a system in the same terms as a GM does. 
I have one player who, will, who when we go back to say HeroQuest, will constantly propose things that uh, that might fix the problem that we have with HeroQuest, but will actually rip out all the good stuff about it as well. <laughs> and, but players don't see the 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 especially players who haven't GM'd don't see the issues in game systems in the same way that uh, that GMs do. My issues are difficulty of preparation, ease of improvisation. It's a, it's, a, it's a tricky thing. And support for the things that the game is about. Yep. Those are the, those are the main, main issues for me. Yeah, ha- having some sort of sliding scale is good. I mean, it, it's extremely rare that I run you know, detailed yard-by-yard GURPS combat. Yeah, it's ex- I think it's extremely right. Everybody, anybody uh, does. Yeah, e- even for me as a as a fairly thoroughgoing fan of GURPS, um, because most of the time it's not that important to the sort of game that's happening. Mm. I mean, you establish that okay, th- this guy's over here and he's not going to be able to get, get close enough in time to make a difference. Yeah, but I the, I, I I do I saw at a, I think it was one of the Cambridge cons, someone had done a beautifully detailed hex map layout of a whole dungeon for Dungeon Fantasy um, and it was absolutely gorgeous and I, I, I could have spent the entire weekend delving down into it and, and taking each hex by hex and running forward and counting the, the shots on my bow <laughs> it would have been um, yeah but I'm just too lazy to prepare something like that. <laughs> there, there is a point about pacing the, the tactician is happy when the big operation goes without a hitch because he's done lots of planning and everything worked. Yeah, Whereas the storyteller wants the cinematic, we did all the planning, but something went wrong. Yeah, well, the GM wants that, and that, that, that is why I'm not sure... I don't know. I, for, for myself, I, I've learned to accept that pacing is just going to be different. Mm. And sometimes, yeah, the, the tension is in the planning, and not necessarily in the execution, because sometimes it does work. The... the... I had some guest players who in, in my campaign, and they were surprised by the amount of planning that I allowed to happen before the mission. <laughs> and that I think that they they come from a more storytelling line and want there to be. Um, uh, and here is one we prepared earlier. Uh, mechanic. Yeah, we we we've, we've talked, talked about this before. Um, implementations of that. I think, from the GM's point of view, you want the moment at which the players go, oh bugger, it worked perfectly and it still wasn't enough. It's, I, no, it's I, I, nice I, I, to have, but I'm not going to force it. I think that's the thing. If if the players have gone to the trouble of getting the really good intelligence from the person who actually knows what the situation is, mm-hmm. then that, to me, is is a player saying, I'm, I'm investing this, I, w- I, w- I would like a reward for it, and that is the reward that I, I get is the operation going smoothly and nobody getting too badly hurt. Yeah, on the other hand, I... What the dramatic interest is, is in the moment when... is in the moment when they have to act under some simulation of real pressure, that they, they've shot their best bolt, and it had the effect they expected, but there's still another... another uh, uh, Jack in the box to pop out and see. Yeah, I, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying I'm not always going to put it in mm. because yeah, it would be predictable. I, well, I, yeah, some days uh, I love it when a plan comes together. You know, <laughs> and th- there's there's the um, look, looking at the adventure construction. It seems to be um, encouraging what what so you call structured adventures. Yeah, um, 
which I think of as, as, as a mission sort of game. You know, this week, this is what you're going to be doing. Yeah. Which is fine. And it really solves the problem of player motivation, which is great. Yeah. And I will admit that a lot of the adventures uh, campaigns I run tend to be on this sort of basis. Yeah. It is nice to have a living world with stuff going on and, and you can choose to get involved with it or you can choose to let it keep happening without necessarily the world ending. Yeah. It's, it's a lot more work. Yeah, the the issue in the laundry at the moment is that the world is ending and there's stuff going on in the background. I'm letting the, the events of the laundry novels unfold in deep in deep background behind them. They mm-hmm. they aren't involved in the Jennifer Morgue or any of the, the, the those affairs, but they're happening in the background and the characters from them popping yeah. from time from time to time. But it is a problem that if they fail bad enough, badly enough on some of their missions, they can bring out Case Nightmare Green early. Mm. And they haven't yet, though the recent events at Dulles Airport um, <laughs> have caused a certain amount of embarrassment to keeping everything secret. I think, I, I think one of the things Robin's moving towards now is a more, is, uh, well, towards two things, um, is a more, Rather than straight line with, he talks about straight line adventures, what would normally be called railroad station A leads to station B leads to station C. Then he talks about branching in which station A leads to station B, but by one or two different, slightly differing routes. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he talks about a web of possibilities in which station A leads to B one, B two, B three, B four, and B five depending on what they do, and there may be a B6 if they do something really unexpected. Mm-hmm. That sort of planning can only go so far. It has to be bent back in on itself, and that's the sort of structure that he's, that he's put up in, that, well, he and, and Ken Height are put up in uh, the Zelazny uh, Quartet, and things like it, where each scene has, this can come from here, you can reach here from, from the, these two scenes, and it can go to these two scenes. Yeah. And that that's the most ambitious I've seen, except for one other thing, which is things like the Armitage Files, which is done for uh, Call of Cthulhu, for, sorry, Trail of Cthulhu, which is basically a, a huge info dump of messages from the future where mm-hmm. the universe is doomed, and you have to unpick it, and all you get is a long list of... Um, NPCs and things that are mentioned in the downloads and you've got to improvise and tie it together as the players yeah. and that is advanced bullshitting. I, I think at some point simulating a sufficiently branching structure becomes simulating a world mm. or at least the relevant bit of the world that the PCs are interacting with. Yeah, it, it, as long as you're not afraid to stick new bits onto the structure that sort of thinking can be very, very useful. But sometimes I just leave it free-floating. I know uh, he also talks about uh, villain pl- timelining, mm. um, which is a technique we've talk about, talked about in the past, where you figure out what the bad guys are going to do and um, you give them a schedule of things that they're going to do and what's going to happen if the PCs don't interfere, which they will. Yep. Um, that's also a technique I found in uh, Monster of the Week, which was what I was running slightly less successfully than it should have done for my uh, Monday night group last night. It's it, it it's a far 
basically you've got a set of floating scenes and things that you can aim at and you let them go at it I, the village the, the the world i constructed for last night was just a small east anglian village with a mad uh with a mad um nature cult trying to reincarnate the green man mm. and the big scene where they got to fight the the lord, local lord sacrificed the virgin vicar and um and they got to fight the green man incarnate didn't happen but they did get to the scene where they interrupt and, ca- and rescue the vicar and kill the the mad lord on his own altar <laughs> so so I, I threw them at it with only a, f- a few scenes and bits that I knew were going to happen and then let let it run and that's the way to do it in some places I think mm. and this and Rob is, is anticipating this sort of thing and large parts of the um, of the generation of indie games that have come up since 2002 probably find their roots in bits of uh, Robin's Laws. I think so, yeah. Uh, there, there are some things towards the end that, that I either have used, possibly without realising that this is where I got them from, or, or will be using, since I reread it. Having a list of plausible names for people you might randomly meet. Oh, yes. Oh, uh, well, this is, this is a thing... It, I can manage it in, uh, in modern-day settings, but it's a thing to have ready for um, all sorts of fantasy settings because the sound of names matters. When when I'm prompted for a name in a modern setting, I usually dry up completely and say Fred. This is a, this is usually an error. That is all. Uh, they're all called Fred. One Fred is uh, only one Fred per campaign. Yeah, quite. So I know I want a list for the rest of them. Uh, he also suggests ha- having a, a, a list of um, distinctive traits, which I think I might try. You know, yeah. mannerisms or whatever. Yeah. Um, I've got a product somewhere called "What is this NPC like?" And uh, <laughs> and has uh, as, as uh, random ro- rolling rolling up tables for all sorts of useful stuff. Right. Um, the the thing that I, I've I don't know if you've come across this in a different context. You're talking about um, the the four-way improvising system. You've got something might happen situation. He's suggesting you come up with with four different ways. What's the most obvious thing that could happen? What's the most surprising thing? What's the most challenging thing? And what's the most player-pleasing thing? And then pick pick from one of those or blend them a bit. Actually, there is a fifth one. What is the artistically right thing to happen? Bugger <laughs> what happens to the players. And I am tempted. Whenever, whenever my my um, whenever my my genie my genius viewed as a slightly separate being from me in the, in the Greek sense uh, whispers something in my ear and says, "You know what would be really cool now?" I have a tendency to go with it. But I've told the story of um, before. Of Stephen Brust, uh, who we mentioned earlier, who said he used to write by sitting down at the typewriter and asking his subconscious, "What is the coolest thing that could happen at this point?" Mm-hmm. And he used to do this freely until he sat down, and the first thing he wrote at the start of a chapter was, "We buried him by the side of the road." And he was he was a page and a half into it before he realised that he killed a major character. <laughs> Because he probably deserved to die anyway. Oh, no, no. Nice, nice little flappy, poisonous thing. <laughs> and he, he, he changed his mind. But the, the point I was going to say is, if it happens to you, you're the GM, go with the moment, I say. Go with the moment. If it hits and it feels right, yeah, probably. Mm. And I don't think this book is obsolete. No, I, I must agree. 
I think Robin would probably write something very different now, and I'm not sure that the thing he would write now would be as useful as this book is. Probably not to me, at least. I'm, I'm playing in a much more old-fashioned style than he is. Yeah. But the players seem to like it, so... Hey, don't argue with success, even if it is your own. <laughs> and at this point, and on that moral tone, I think we will say, that's an end. That was Improvised Radio Theatre with Dice. Me, Michael Keel. And me, Roger Bell West. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us the embarrassing questions that your players have uh, stumped you with, or anything else you want to say. You can uh, leave comments on the website or send a message to podcast at tekeli.ly. And uh, we wish you a good day. <laughs>